Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. I didn't want to be an advertising photographer or a fashion photographer. And I actually rang my father from America and said, could I come home, live at home, and work in the bar at night? Uh, because I wanted to photograph the Isle of Man. And he said, fine, sure. In this episode, I speak with British photographer Chris Killip. When the steel, ship and coal mining industries of England went into decline in the 1970s and 80s, Chris Killip was there with camera in hand. His intimate photographs of the working class are captured in a book titled In Flagrante, often considered the most important photography book to document the devastating impact of deindustrialization in northern England. The intimacy in Chris's portraits is immediate. His subjects are caught mid-act and mid-emotion, and one can feel the reality of the grit of his scenes at first glance. A boy with rubber boots lying with his head in hand at the base of a mountain of coal, cars and trucks in the faded, stagnant background. A woman hunched over, sitting on a curb, her head bowed dejectedly, and her arms draped hopelessly over her legs. A shadow of a figure, presumably Chris, and a camera angle into the scene from below. He lived with the communities he photographed for months, to gain their trust and, in his words, to get under the skin of the place. And the results speak for themselves. Chris's work is the subject of the Getty exhibition, Now Then, Chris Killip and the Making of In Flagrante, on view at the Getty Center through August 13, 2017. I spoke with Chris on the phone from Harvard University, where he is Professor of Visual and Environmental Studies, about his early life and work as a photographer. Chris, it's great to have you with us this morning. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Uh, you were born in Douglas on the Isle of Man in 1946, shortly after the Second World War. I, I read somewhere that there was an internment camp in Douglas and that it was known as the artist's camp because of the artistic and intellectual life of its internees. You couldn't possibly have rem remembered that because you were born after the war. But you might remember stories about the camp or any lingering after effects of the war growing up in Douglas as a child. Only most memorably, uh, in the First World War, Kurt Schwitter was interned in the Alaman at a very big internment camp, which was in the countryside. And he wrote at one point, he used to bark himself to sleep like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> So there's something about the Isle of Man that made it so attractive as a place for internment camps. Well, no. Well, what was amazing in terms of the First World War, there were many great archaeologists working in English universities at the time, and they were all interred in the Isle of Man. And they did these great digs, exemplary digs in the Isle of Man, because they had nothing else to do. And they had a lot of unpaid labor who were only too happy to leave the camp and go and help them dig. It's quite interesting to see sort of the extent of the excavations on the Isle of Man and how brilliant they are. But that's thanks to internment. <laughs> I see. But was there any kind of lingering social effects of the war uh, on, on the life uh, no, in Douglas? No, the internment camps in the Isle of Man, particularly in the Second World War, weren't too strict. They were in boarding houses and people you know, weren't going to escape. It was an island. And I don't think it was too odious for anybody to be interred in the Isle of Man at that time. Also, rationally in the Isle of Man wasn't strictly observed because there was plenty of fish and it was lots of farming, lots of food. So no, nobody suffered unduly in the Isle of Man during the Second World War. 
Well, well, tell us more about the social and economic character of the Isle of Man when you were growing up. What was it like to grow up there? Well, I, when I grew up in the Isle of Man, it's very different than it is now. It was a much poorer place and very much a seasonal sort of activities, meaning fishing. It was the centre of herring fishing. Herring is a migratory fish, and it starts off in the north of Scotland. And the fleet were from Ireland, England, and the Isle of Man follow the herring for the season, and they end up in the middle of the summer in the Isle of Man. And then later they have to go through to the east coast of England for the residue of the herring. And the Isle of Man in the, in the summer had this strange economy where there was a surplus of agricultural food and many, many holidaymakers who were all channeled to the Isle of Man from the north of England. There's the industrial north of England where you had wake weeks where people were brought by train to the boat and then sent to the Isle of Man on their holidays, their one week or two weeks holidays. And the wake weeks for these towns like Blackburn, Burnley and all these towns in the north were all staggered. So it was a different week, there was a different wake week. And Glasgow was another one. And if you went down to the promenade in the Isle of Man, the summer which I did as a kid, you could tell when the Glasgow ship workers were in because some people were bent double walking along and they were the rivet catchers in the ship building yard and they had these industrial deformities basically and you could see a lot of people from the Lancashire cotton mills were deaf and there was a lot of sign language going on. So you, you had all this sort of strange observation of the English working class, which being Manx, you were not part of. I mean, I was working class in a Manx sense, but not in the northern English industrial sense, the industrial working class. What was it like to be working class in a Manx sense? Uh, well, you had no sense of class in the Isle of Man. I mean, I grew up in a fishing village, Peel, on, on the west coast of the Isle of Man, and everybody went to the same things. So there was not a class division, and I was very unaware of class as a child. Uh, I was only more aware of class when I left and came to London when I was 18. I didn't have much class sensibility as a child. My father had a pub, which was the, the centre of the town, and everybody drank in that pub. So, so, I mean, when I was at school, the school teacher used to tell me if I didn't pay attention, I'd end up with the trash men. Well, actually, all the trash men drank in my pub, and I liked them all. I knew them all. I knew they weren't stupid. <laughs> <laughs> or if I wasn't careful, I'd end up on the quay with the fishermen. Well, I knew all the fishermen because they drank in my father's pub, and I knew they, they weren't stupid. So I became rather at odds with school and attitudes towards uh, brains and education. <laughs> Did you have a real clear sense of yourself as a Manx? And if so, yes, what, what did that yeah, mean? Well, that was instilled on me by my late father. My father was passionate about the Isle of Man. And so every Sunday, we used to go on these amazing routes with my father to find various obscure archaeological sites. And the car got stuck many times. And my mother was always berating my farmer. The farmer had to come out yet again to dig us out of a ditch or pull us out of a river. My father loved all these jokes on a <laughs> Sunday. And unwittingly, I grew to know and, and like and then love the Isle of Man. And a lot of it's due to my father and his absolute enthusiasm for the Isle of Man. What was your schooling like uh, at the Isle of Man? Abysmal, abysmal. I went to the same school, Douglas High School for Boys, as Frank Kermode. And if you... Oh, he, he, <laughs> oh really? Yeah, he writes very well about it in his autobiography, a very strange autobiography, which is just of a few incidents in his life. Um, but it wasn't a particularly good school. And I unknowingly was dyslexic, so I had rather a tough time of at school. And I left when I was 16, which was the earliest time I could leave. So, so Frank Kermode was older than you, but yeah. did you know his family? My mother was friends with his sister, um, so I knew of him. And my my cousin, Charlie Quirk, was also the preeminent English linguist at London University. He was Charlie Quirk, who later became Sir Randolph Quirk, who is now 
Lord Bloomsbury. But to me, he was Charlie Quirk. And it's strange to me that the two doyens of English language and literature both came from the Isle of Man. And I've never been able to sort of like resolve this in my own head, except I know that the oral tradition was quite important to them both. Well, you left school, as you already said, at age 16, and, and you left to become a trainee as a hotel manager. Correct. Was there anything, anything that you saw or heard in the hotel that attracted you to the intimate dramas of people's lives of a kind that you would document in photography? Uh, not, not really, but I ended up in the kitchens, which were very dramatic and very tense. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. But my father sort of came to me one day and said he'd been talking to people in, in, in the brewery in the Isle of Man and they told him that if I was going to make a go of it, the best hotel schools were both in Switzerland and he was prepared to pay for me to go to these schools, which actually made me think really hard because although I liked what I was doing, I knew I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. And I had seen a photograph by Henri Cartier-Bresson when I was looking through a copy of Paris Match to get to the cycling pages for the Tour de France, the photograph was Boy with Two Bottles of Wine, Rue de Mouffetard, oh, yeah. 1954. And this image stopped me because it really puzzled me. I liked it an awful lot, but I also didn't know why I liked it. I knew it wasn't a snapshot for some reason, but I didn't know why I thought it wasn't a snapshot. And so for me, it was just very intriguing. I couldn't have articulated my feelings about it, but I was mesmerized by it. And I sort of felt up against the wall of my father with this very kind gesture to send me off to Switzerland. He was going to pay for it. And this was something I didn't want to do. So I went to my father and told him I was going to be a photographer. And he was quite puzzled. He said, but you don't have a camera. I said, I know. He said, you haven't taken a photo. I said, I know, but that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) (laughs) And so he nodded. (laughs) And I became a beach photographer in the Isle of Man. photographing people on, on, on the beach, holidaymakers. And I saved my money and then I left for London. I think it was October and 1964. And you, you were 18? I was 18. And I suppose looking back quite naive, I arranged to meet a friend who was going out with the sister of my girlfriend at the time. He was from Birmingham. I arranged to meet him under the big clock at Charing Cross Station. I assumed there was a big clock. I didn't actually know. <laughs> and on a Saturday, and he, he didn't turn up. And I was so flabbergasted, I didn't know what to do. I slept in the doorway that, that night. I put all my luggage in the left luggage and sort of wandered the streets. And I was so sort of uh, confused. I didn't even stay in a hotel room or, or anywhere. And the next day, I was walking down Oxford Street and I bumped into him. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and he, was, he was a daylight <laughs> in the wrong place and I actually bumped into him. And so we, we got a place together and I went to the library and made a list of what I thought were the 50 best photographers in London. And I can remember number one was David Bailey, very famous photographer at that time. And number two was Terence Donovan. Number three was Brian Duffy and so on. Then my nerves failed and I knocked on the door of the 50th photographer because I felt I didn't know anything. And I hadn't a job and I knocked on 45 doors and no job. And when I knocked on the sort of 46th door, uh, it was 46 Tide Street, the former home of Oscar Wilde. And it was the studio of Adrian Flowers. And the girl who answered the door said, where are you from? I said, the Isle of Man. She said, I thought so. She said, come in. And it turned out her boyfriend from college <laughs> was from the Isle of Man. And she liked me. And she said, come back tonight. I'll talk to Adrian. So I went back that night and met Adrian. And he said, oh, is this him? And he said, yes. Anyway, he had three assistants, but he hired me. He didn't need me, but he hired me as the fourth assistant. I went in on the Monday morning, first day of my work, and I, my knees started. I, I just felt so faint. He had his reel-to-reel tapes of all this jazz, and he was playing Art Tatum's 14 Variations on Over the Rainbow, and I felt so completely out of my depth. I can remember 
feeling panicked that I knew nothing. But I recovered a bit in the morning. And at the end of the week, Adrian said to me, you know about food. Can you organize some food tonight for a little party? I've got two friends who are married in Israel, and they have no photographs. So they're coming tonight, and I'm going to photograph them. So I ran off and got the champagne and made canapes and, and sort of ran around. And then at 6 o'clock, the door burst open, and in came Jacqueline Dupre and Daniel Barrenbaum. And, and, <laughs> and they were already drunk on love. It was amazing. And I was running around with the champagne thinking, well, yeah, life's really quite good. <laughs> You've lived a charm life, well, Mr. Killip. I had no idea how lucky I was to end up with this man in the studio. Tell, tell us about him, Adrian Flowers. He'd become a photographer uh, during national service in the RAF, along with Len Dayton and a very famous designer called G. Ray Hawkey, and they were all still friends. And uh, Adrian was a famous food photographer. We also did all the adverts for Benson Hedges cigarettes. It was a hardcore advertising studio, but he also did editorial for The Observer. And I can remember the food writer of The Observer was a terrible man called Clement Freud, uh, brother of Lucien, but Lucien is very estranged from Clement. One day we had to do an omelette, and Adrian didn't hire a home economist to make the omelette, he hired me. And Lucien Freud was very, very angry that he hadn't hired a home economist, and his, only his assistant was going to make the omelette. And as luck would have it, I made the most perfect omelette I've ever made in my life for the <laughs> photograph. <laughs> and Adrian was bending over photographs, and he was look, looking down, and he kept winking at me <laughs> and laughing. <laughs> and Freud was sort of mumbling to himself, but the photograph was very good. Adrian would actually ask me after every photo I made, what did I think of it? And I'd actually, in my terrible arrogance, would criticise it. And I had no idea what he was doing for me, which was giving me confidence. He was making me talk about things and building my confidence. He was actually, in fact, as I now know, a very good teacher. Did you take any photographs for him? No. I, he, uh, at Christmas, he gave me a camera, my first camera. <laughs> it was a Pentax. And then I photographed myself. I never photographed him. I was assisting him in, in the commercial jobs that he was doing. Well, in 1969, shortly thereafter, you went to New York, and I read that you saw an exhibition of photography at MoMA, at the Museum of Modern Art. What was that exhibition, and why was it so memorable? Well, because I'd never seen an exhibition of photography before. There had only been one exhibition in Britain before that, and that was the work of Henri Cartier-Bresson at the V&A, but I never saw that exhibition. And in New York, I went to the Museum of Modern Art, and ironically, the exhibition that was on at that time was Bill Brandt, Bill Brandt from England. Oh, gosh. But what really uh, changed my life was not that. It was the permanent collection. It was seeing these amazing photographs from the 19th century and the 20th century, particularly people like Paul Strand and Walker Evans, and just seeing them so intently presented and realizing at the end of the day I could do photography for its own sake. I had no idea what I wanted to do in photography, except I didn't want to be an advertising photographer or a fashion photographer, and I realized you could just do it. And this was such a great moment. Then later that night, I was scratching my head, do what? And I actually rang my father from America and said, could I come home, live at home, and work in the bar at night uh, because I wanted to photograph the Isle of Man? And he said, fine, sure. And so he was my unspoken patron. So I came home, I I worked in the bar at night and went out and photographed, used his car. He always had gasoline in the car and he also paid me. And I would come home each day at about around six, develop the film, have something to eat and then work in the bar. I had one very funny moment one night. I was friendly with a man who was my greatest sort of critic in London. It was a man called Norman Hall, who was the sort of... He was at that time the picture editor of the Times of London. But he was also the main critic, really, and or facilitator of photography in Britain. He was also quite strict. He had sort of an acerbic eye. 
and he took me a bit under his wing. And one night I was behind the bar and the phone went, and that was a coin box outside of the bar. And I picked up the phone and the man said, it's Norman here, Chris. I've got somebody who wants to talk to you. I said, yes, who's that? He said, it's Paul Strand. So I said, said, good evening, Mr. Strand. He said, Norman's spoken very highly of you. Can you meet me tomorrow in London? I said, I'm afraid I can't, Mr. Strand. I didn't have any money. I couldn't just fly to London. And he couldn't understand why I couldn't turn up the next day to meet him. And then everybody was shouting for their drinks at the same time. (laughs) And I said, Mr. Strand, I have to go now. It's been very nice talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. It was a very, very funny but very awkward moment. I would have liked to have met Paul Strand. He was staying with Norman, but, <laughs> yes, but, <I'm> sure. <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> well, two years later, you were back in New York, and a, a gallerist named Lee Whitkin commissioned from you a portfolio uh, of your Isle of Man work. So you had a body of work that you could show him. What kind of work was that? That was the first of the work that I was doing in the Isle of Man. Lee was quite strange. He was the first commercial gallery photographer in New York. And he liked my work. It just coincided when he was starting a series of portfolios with a man called Dan Burley, who was a collector. And he said, did I want to do a portfolio? And I said, yes, I'd love to on the Isle of Man. I was going to go back and work. And then he and I together would select the images for the portfolio. And we sat down and he told me how much he'd pay me. And I agreed. It was great. And then he wrote me a check for half the money. So I went back to the Isle of Man with half this money. I think this was something like October. In May, I got a letter from him saying, I've been thinking about you. You must have run out of money by now. Here's the other half. And he paid the, <laughs> he paid the whole amount. He didn't have a photograph. And it enabled me to carry on. And then the following October, which is more than a year later, I went out with more pictures to show him. And from then, we selected the portfolio. But it, was, it seemed strange that nothing was written down. And I had all the money, and he had no pictures, which wouldn't happen now. <laughs> it wouldn't happen like that now. No. When you look back at that work, what does it seem to you now? When I look at it, the Isle of Man work, the early works from the 70s, early 70s, it seems elegiac as if you know, you're capturing a, a culture or a way of life that was disappearing. Did you have that sense of it when you were taking the pictures? Oh, for sure, because in the 70s, the Isle of Man had declared itself a tax haven. Now, tax was low in the Isle of Man because people didn't have that much money. But the government in the Isle of Man were rather desperate because the... Holiday-making industry was going into decline because the man called Freddie Laker started off the cheap flights to Spain and the English working class were not getting funneled into places like the Isle of Man and Blackpool. They were going to the sunshine for the same price in Spain and they knew they'd have to try and do something to revive the economy. And so this promotion of the tax haven became a, a very big business and I realised that if this took effect, it was going to change the Isle of Man quite radically. And so I sort of very consciously went after sort of the, the Isle of Man that I knew feeling that it was going to be jeopardized. And these portraits of the individuals that you have, these are people that you knew intimately? No, I didn't know them. And some of the people are related to me, some are distant, very distant relationships. I didn't realize I was related to them. But a lot of them had no idea who I was. And people would ask me this, which I thought at the time was a very strange question. Like, who is your grandmother on your father's side and your grandfather on your mother's side? And I used to reel off who they were, that my father was the son of the miller in Laxey and my grandmother was a quirk from Cronkavody, a Cronkavody quirk, the same as Randolph quirk, Lord Bloomsbury. And people would then digest this and then allow me to photograph them. And I used to think, how do they think they know me just by knowing that? Now I think they might know quite a lot about me by knowing that. (laughs) But at the time, I used to be quite mystified by the fact that this gave them the confidence to allow me to photograph them. But it allowed them to locate me. 
And in the Isle of Man, that's quite interesting because I, I can go into a bar in the village I grew up in, Peel, and stand and look at young men standing there and I know who they are, meaning I know which family they belong to just because of their physical characteristics. I can recognise them as being the quirks from Northview or a Crellon or whatever it is or, or the Tears. They're all recognisable types to me and they would have no idea who the old guy was standing at the other end of the bar. But the photographs are beautiful in their composition, beautiful in capturing the play of light across the surfaces and the articulation of the different uh, textures uh, of clothing and and stone and doorways and things. Uh, They're beautifully printed as well. Did this commission that you got from uh, Lee Whitkin, did it allow you to do a higher level of, of, of printing than you'd done before because you had resources now for the chemicals yeah, and the I paper? Mean, well, and the, well, was, well, the big difference was when I first photographed there, I, I used a 35mm camera and I came back and I showed them to the main picture editor in London, a man called Bill Jay at the time, and he looked at them and he said, well, they're fine, but I think you're crazy. You've got a, a 35mm camera on a tripod, which is complete lunacy. Why don't you use a play camera? And I was quite indignant, but that night it worried me that he might be right. So the next day I hired a plate camera, went back to the Isle of Man, and on the first picture that I took, which is actually of the miller from the Golden Meadow Mill, I realised he was right. As I was taking the picture, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm doomed to carry a plate camera. And it was quite true. (laughs) And it was a great help to me and also slowed me down and made me think more consciously about the photography in the way that I was uh, archiving people. Uh, You know, the detail on on a a 4x5 is is considerable. Uh, And so it it really did affect me. When I finished photographing the Alaman, I wanted to get away from the tripod and change my photography, and I made a great effort to do that. But uh, but for the Isle of Man, I stuck with it. When I look at those pictures now, I actually think of the Alaman pictures as something like a butterfly collection. Like they seem to be like pinned down on the page like butterflies. Well, o- over the next four years, you were back in England, and and you got a commission then from the Arts Council to photograph a couple of cities, Huddersfield and Barry St. Edmunds, and then you got a fellowship and moved to Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where you worked for some 10 years. So you're now back. How did it feel to be divorced from your youthful subject matter and to be engaged in a commissioned project to document uh, an English city? It was great because I really did. When I finished The Isle of Man, I wanted to change my photography very much. And I didn't know how to do it, but knew I could do it through working. And so when I went to Huddersfield the first place, I, I really tried to change and, and get away from just the static thing of being on the tripod. And then in the northeast, I really moved away from that. And also, I was very glad to be in Newcastle because it's the furthest you can get away from London. I wanted to work unobserved and just just work, not be involved with anything to do with London or a career, meaning that I had enough money from the fellowship not to worry about money and to spend that money just on my work. And so it was, it was a great sort of energized burst of work. I didn't think I was ever making much progress, but when you, you know, that eventually you look back and you see you have made some progress. But it was just this great opportunity, financial opportunity, just to work unencumbered. Tell us about your working process and then tell us about the progress that you made as you described it. Well, well, my working process was just to be involved. I photographed a pipeline which went from the east coast of Scotland to Bishop Auckland in, in the northeast of England. And that was going to last for two years. So I, I had to spend 20 hours a month working for the gas board and I religiously did this. I made a very good documentation for them of the pipeline being built. But I also got to see that the countryside and other areas because of travelling for the gas board and had a very good idea of the physical look of the area. 
And then when I was photographing myself, I'd pick specific areas and really, really photograph in them. There was a great difficulty I sometimes I had when I was photographing when things weren't going well. I'd move to another area, move to another area. So I had this discipline. I would name a street that I was going to photograph the next day. And the deal was I couldn't leave it. I'd get there at 8.30 in the morning and I was not allowed to leave till 6 at night. It was to stop me from thinking that the grass is greener somewhere else. So I'd get there and I'd sit in my car, smoke a cigarette, fiddle with the radio. And eventually I'd get out and it might be raining. I might start to photograph not know what I was doing, and then I'd find something to do. And by the end of the day, I was sort of in a groove because I'd found something. And I found that just sticking with things was a big help to me. But when you went back to your flat or your room, wherever it was you were staying, did you print them out in any kind of way? In the Isle of Man, I didn't have any money. So I used to develop the film at night and look at the negatives and then go and work in the bar. And then the next day, I select an image to print and I'd put that in a box that I was going to take to London in the summer to go and print. And I didn't look at this work again until I went back into the Isle of Man archive when I was doing my retrospective exhibition. And I was surprised how many images I found that I liked and hadn't printed at the time. And I had no idea why I didn't print them at the time. That's so, so interesting to me. Let me ask the question, such a naive question. I assumed a photographer, therefore you, would take a picture, develop the film, print it and look at the printed film. But you're telling me that you could see in the negative itself qualities that would allow you to identify that as going to be a particularly good image. Did you actually look at the negatives? And was that sufficient? Uh, I <laughs> I thought it was at the time. But in, with hindsight, now going back to look at the whole archive, I was right about 85% of the time. But the other 15% that I missed are very interesting <laughs> pictures to me now. <laughs> and I have no idea why I didn't select them. So it's great to go back to the archive to find these things that, that I had overlooked or, or had put to one side at the time. My reason for not making prints, I had no darkroom and I had no money. So what, what I do, I take these negatives that I'd selected to print and I'd go to my friend in London, a photographer called Hiroshi Yoda, and I'd use his darkroom. I took a sleeping bag. I was conscious I didn't want to like ruin his life or hog his darkroom. So I'd print for 12 or 15 hours, 16 hours to go, fall asleep on the floor in my sleeping bag, get up and start printing again, and as fast as I could within a week to make the, the prints that I'd come to make. Then I'd go back to the Isle of Man again. I had limited resources, and I just tried to make the most of things. But I'm very glad I did the retrospective and went back to look at the work again. I actually made a set of 250 prints, and they were scanned, for the museum in the Isle of Man. And they now have this archive. They have the prints and they have the digital files, because I want that work to be in the Isle of Man. So I was very pleased about like moving this work away from me and, and locating it back in the Isle of Man in the Manx Museum. When you were at the Isle of Man and now when you're in the north of England, uh, did you have a chance to look at the work of other photographers? Yeah, I mean, I was looking at lots of photographers. I mean, I was a subscriber to a magazine, defunct magazine called Camera of Switzerland. There was a magazine in England called Creative Camera that was very important to me. And also uh, I was in dialogue with other photographers. Different people stayed with me. I'm big friends with Joseph Kadelka. When Kadelka, yeah, when did you meet him and how did you meet I him? I met him in the, about 1971 when he first came to Britain. When, when he was, I think 1970, he landed in, in Britain as a stateless person. And I met him at David Hearn's apartment, the Magnum photographer. And we became friends. He introduced me to the mother of my son, Marketa Luskacheva. Um, and so he's sort of part of my life. He came up to Newcastle in 75 when I was working there and he sort of sat with me 
and said he thought it would be a good idea if I stayed here for a long time. He said that if you sent six Magnum photographers, who are very good photographers, to Newcastle for six weeks, he felt inevitably they would take sort of similar pictures and only be able to go so far in six weeks. But if I stayed six months or 16 months or two years or more, something different would happen. I'd get up more under the skin of the place and I would be able to do something that you couldn't do in six weeks. I would know the place. I would be able to accept certain things about the place, which as an outsider you were unable to accept. Meaning for me, it's very interesting to look at Paul Strand's photographs of Mexico compared to Manuel Alvarez Bravo's photographs of Mexico to see how Strand, a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, so this is very ironic, how he beautified poverty and beautified suffering and simplified Mexico and the Mexican people. And when you look at Manuel Alvarez Bravo, you see the pictures are often quite ambiguous. He's able to accommodate ambiguity. But sometimes when you come to a place with your own prejudice, initially you've got a fixed view about what you're going to do and what you're going to take from the place. And you don't like ambiguity. It's not in your fixed image, the, you know, the baggage that you've brought with you. But if you stay in a place for longer, that sort of goes away more and you can embrace the ambiguity of a place. And that's what Kadelka was hinting at. He didn't articulate it like that, but I now see it as that. Tell us how that worked for you, because this idea that you got under the skin seems so appropriate when looking at these photographs of the, the young people. We should also acknowledge that this is marching on to the uh, Thatcher years and the, the effects of the economy uh, on these big industrial sites and so forth. Yeah. Talk a bit about that. Well, Newcastle was a part of the great historic industry because it had coal and because it had iron ore. So what you had is, is, is through the coal mines, you had shipbuilding, you had steelworks, and you had these massive industries, which were very dominant in the area. They were massive employers, historically very important. There was a lot of tradition and skill in these industries. And they, they were, you know, they say, you don't bring coals to Newcastle. It's how the place was formed. It's a reason for being with all these heavy industries. When I was photographing, you knew things were going to change, but I had no idea all this was going to happen so dramatically and so quickly. I was obsessed with the shipyard Swan Hunter, and the, the management wouldn't allow me to come in because I wasn't from anywhere. I wasn't from any recognized institution. And so they refused me permission to photograph within the yard. But I could access the yard because you could look over the wall at what they were doing. And they had little jetties down on the river, which I could stand on and photograph the people building the ships. And I obsessively photographed this, thinking this is not going to last forever, but not knowing how true my words were. When I did a show at Le Bal in Paris, the director of Le Bal was looking at my work and it showed a street in Wall's End, which is the shipbuilding capitals around Swan Hunter's shipyard, one picture was 1975, and another picture was a demolition of all this area. It was 1977. She said, surely, Chris, you're wrong on that date. That couldn't have happened so quickly. And I, I was in Paris, and I was like, well, wait a minute. Is she right? I don't know. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. I moved over to the other side of the river in 1981. Maybe she is right. And she kept telling me that this couldn't have happened so quickly. Actually, in the show, I changed the date to 1981 for the demolition, thinking I was wrong. And when I came back, I went to my negatives. No, I was right. It was 1977. And it did happen that quickly. And it is shocking to me now to think that all this happened that quickly. 
It's strange going back to the archive. I keep returning to it because I've become more interested in the shipbuilding pictures that I have. And at the time, I didn't use many of them because I didn't want to be thought of, I think, as an industrial photographer uh, or something like that. But anyway, I found these uh, really interesting pictures of the ships being built, which I knowingly documented, thinking this wasn't going to last in this way. And I'm very pleased I've been making little books myself on blurb and assessing this work. So, But the next picture is nobody's seen. I've got a whole set of pictures I've never released, which I'm now, <laughs> which I'm now, <laughs> now, now bringing out. So it's quite strange, me in the archive. I found a set of contacts in a box, which I'd put away. And they're of a, a place in 1985, which was the punk venue in the northeast, which is called The Station. It was an old police social club on Waste Ground in the centre of Gateshead. And it was run by an interesting group of people called the Gateshead Music Collective, who were these quite-together young people who were punks. And they had their own venue. And this was the venue at night on Saturday, but it was also a rehearsal room for all the punk bands. And I photographed there in the summer of 1985, but only took two images from that. There's only two that have ever been published. I made a book now online, and I'm waiting for it to come back, of 54 images, I think it's an interesting book, on this one place. But so sometimes I'd done more than I realised. I mean, I have them in the archive, and I've no idea why I haven't gone back to it until now, but I hadn't. And so I'm now very pleased to find these things. It's like a new discovery. But every time I look at the pictures, I can remember the making of them in this place. And the photographs are all black and white. All black and white. These are all with flash, and they're all with a 5 by 4 Linhoff. So the detail is quite extraordinary in these pictures. They're a very strange set of pictures. It was a, a very lively place. I'd been trying to photograph nighttime music in Newcastle, and I kept coming back to this place because it was the most exhilarating and the most strange of anywhere. But but all these pictures, the fact that they're taken in black and white seems to, to distance them from current reality. This seems to have captured them at a moment of time as if that time is now lost as a result. Because if it were in color, color would have some sort of continuous relationship to the world we see on a daily basis. Were you interested in the black and white for that reason or for just the formal qualities of the textures and the lights and the shadows? Well, all, all often the, the reason for me photographing black and white initially was probably to do with, with economics, that color was, was prohibitively expensive for someone like me that was much more practical to photograph in black and white. Then it became this understanding that the black and white was so interesting because of its relationship with history. I mean, that color always somehow seems to locate the image, even if it's from the past, it locates it more in the present. But black and white does this distancing. It's an abstraction of reality. And, and in turn, as we're used to seeing black and white, it seems to have this very strong location with history. Black and white images are inevitably seem to be historical documents. My real liking for black and white was the way it was removed from reality. It was one step removed. It was an abstraction of reality. And that's what I liked so much about black and white. These um, pictures that we've acquired for the Getty Museum here at the Getty Center, uh, 50 prints from the series called In Flagrante, I'm interested in that title because I think it means something like caught in the middle of a criminal offense, or but it's also used to suggest being caught red-handed or even caught in the middle of a sexual act. And that seems to be what's happened in these pictures. These pictures, you've caught someone just on a, a crime has just been committed or an, act, an event is about to be committed. Um, tell us about the title, In Flagrante. Well, In Flagrante is usually used in legal terms in, and most commonly in divorce cases where somebody is caught in flagrante delecto, caught in the sexual act. 
And so it's it's like the evidence of that. And I've sort of taken the sexual connotation out and just have it as caught in the act. It was very difficult to think of a title. Using a Latin title for me was quite interesting because I didn't want it to be just dismissed as the North. You know, in England, you can dismiss everybody. You can dismiss things when you say, oh, it's from the North, meaning, oh, we all know about that. I I also thought it would be a little bit intriguing for people, the title, but it didn't say this is the North of England, although every, every subject in it is from the North of England, I think minus one picture. Were you ever aware of, of uh, Benjamin's uh, sort of description of at Jay's photographs as seemingly to have been taken as a crime, has just been committed or something such as that? Yes. Um, and all photographs, are, you know, in that sense, are evidence of the crime. <laughs> They're all evidential. They're, all photographs are also historic in the sense that you can't bring that moment back. You're photographing a moment that at the moment you photographed, it's gone. I can understand why people can have religious objections to photography, you know, that it's a sacrilege. You're flying in the face of the maker by believing you can stop time, which, of course, you can't. Yeah. You've been living uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts now for the last 20 years or so, uh, obviously, therefore, far from the source of your early work, whether it was in Isle of Man or the north of England. How has your work changed living abroad and living in Cambridge, Massachusetts in particular? Well, living in Cambridge hasn't changed my work in that sense. People ask me when I'm in England, how do I like living in America? And I say, oh, it's very nice. I can't tell what I think is the truth. What I'd like to say is I don't live in America. I live in Harvard. I live in the Ivory Tower, which is not America. I have no knowledge of America in that sense, that I've never lived in it. I've lived constantly for 26 years in Cambridge. I can't say that to people because it sounds absurd. But an American might recognize the truth in that that Cambridge isn't America. My wife comes from Omaha, Nebraska, and it's a very different kettle of fish than Cambridge. Uh, And L.A. is a very different place than Cambridge. Even if I lived in the centre of Boston, that would be very different, but I don't. I live four minutes from Harvard. Are you taking pictures in Cambridge? No. I take family pictures, but I don't go out and photograph in Cambridge, no. And what I've done traditionally is leave uh, America in the summer and go away and photograph. Uh, particularly when I I was more involved with the department as chair and stuff like that. It was great to escape. And that's how I ended up photographing in Ireland for five, six years, because it was just my way of getting away in the summer and being somewhere completely different and sort of forgetting about Cambridge and America and concentrating on something else. Well, we're thrilled to have the collection of Inflagrante, the 50 pictures, the prints in the collection of the Getty Museum and to have the exhibition coming up. Uh, Tell us what your expectations are for the exhibition, how it is that you imagine it being installed. What do you want to make of the space of the Getty Museum for the presentation of your photographs? Well, well, in many ways, the the exhibition is a dissection of Inflagrante. It's it's showing what went into the making of it. So within the exhibition, there are going to be contact sheets. Then there will be these little things called work prints, the prints that I made, and other photographs, the ones that are not necessarily in Inflagrante, but are from bodies of work that I was working on that I then made like a, a great commitment to certain things, like the people who get cold from the sea or the fishing village of Skin and Grove. And I extracted certain amount of pictures from that to put in Inforgranti. There are no titles in the original Inforgranti. And so it's quite nice to contextualise the work in, in, a, in a much broader sense. So that'll be interesting uh, for me and for other people, I hope, too, as well.
Yeah. Well, we're thrilled, Chris, to have the pictures here, as I said, and it'll be great to see them on the walls of the museum. So thanks for all of that work and making it possible for us to perpetuate them here in the, in the Getty Museum, but also thanks for the time this morning on the podcast. It's always great talking to you. Yeah, yeah I look forward to seeing the show. And very good to talk to you too, Jim. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.